guys. Welcome back to another episode of Salt Lime Storytime. Our close personal friend Jess is gone gallivanting in the corporate world, as she put it, um, doing successful things with her successful self. And so I am joined by my less successful cousin. (laughs) Just kidding. I am joined by my incredibly awesome cousin who actually has a really fucking cool job right now. Um, Kate, who is in California. She joined us for one of our 321 shots. Hello, Kate. Thank you for subbing in for Jess for this month. Oh, you are so welcome. I am so honored to be here. I feel I'm genuinely kind of nervous. I feel a little bit like the new stepmom. Like, I'll <laughs> never replace your mom. Like, you know, I just, but I'm I'm excited. I'm sure. excited to be here. So Okay. I mean, none of us are thinking that you're going to replace um, our other mother, Jess. You're oh, just the cool aunt to. that's coming yeah. in for some exactly. extra pizzazz, really. <laughs> so anyway, it is now officially November. And November has a lot of great things, Thanksgiving included, but also has a lot of terrible history, especially regarding Thanksgiving. And is more importantly, November is known as Native American Heritage Month. And so to kick off November, Kay had the idea to talk about Indigenous people and their stories. And so today, that's what we will be discussing, uh, a few very amazing and influential Indigenous people that we should celebrate this month. So... Before we get into that, Kate, how are you? I'm doing just fine. Um, thank you for asking. I've had a few <laughs> I've had a few days off, which has been nice um, because as Allison said, my very awesome job, while it is awesome, also has incredibly long hours. Um, so I am happy to be rested and I watched um, Nightmare on Elm Street last night. Which mm. I highly recommend if you haven't seen. It is probably the haven't. campiest, the campiest, funniest movie I have ever seen. Is that with Freddy Krueger? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, actually, it's I watched it. It's genuinely hilarious. It's okay. genuinely hilarious. Okay. So I highly recommend. Real fast. Do you want to tell the people what you do for work? Just real quick. Just real quick. Yeah. yeah. So I'm currently um, a production assistant on a movie called Night Bitch. <laughs> which uh <laughs> I can't wait to come out because I have no idea how the fuck it's gonna turn out but um anyway you'll know it when you see it because you'll be like what the fuck and it's it's interesting but the hours are brutal and mostly I just stand around and tell people not to walk into frame and when the director says rolling I go rolling and you get smiled at by Amy Adams right I do I do on the daily well when I'm there I do get smiled at by Amy Adams she's very nice um, yeah, Damn. we're like best friends now. Have you had a full conversation yeah. with her yet? Oh, not at all. No. Oh, okay. No. I think I... <laughs> okay. Okay. I think the most we've said is like, good morning. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, I'm like, I'm then I'm like replaying in my head. Like, did I fuck it up? Did I fuck it up? But man, you know. well, okay. That's pretty, that's pretty cool. I, I'm, I'm pumped for you. And even though you have to work 16 hour days, I appreciate you being here for this month. So, oh, I'm stoked. Yeah. Did you happen to bring a beverage with you today? I so did. I so did bring a beverage that I am going to just call the poor man's margarita because I just poured some tequila in a glass and some limeade. Limeade? <laughs> over top. And then I added some pomegranate juice because of antioxidants. Um, so. Wow, that's great. I, I also mm-hmm. made a beverage. It's another. Ooh. 
well, I think I've had it before. It, it is called technically the Lynchburg Lemon, but I'm giving it a new name for this podcast episode with you. Uh, okay. I made sure to get the biggest pieces of ice I could find. So it's on the rocks. And I am going to call it Kate, swim to the middle of that lake and find me the biggest rock you can find and bring it to me. <laughs> I'm getting triggered. You are triggering me right now. On the now. rocks. Delicious. Does that, does that taste good? Does your does your bullying taste good? Honestly, nothing tastes better than the tears of people I don't like. So, for those of you that don't know, I, for some reason, hated Kate for absolutely no reason growing up. Literally, like, absolutely mm-hmm. no reason. There was nothing, yeah. except she was, like, too nice and perfect, and I was mad about that. That's that's it. But, uh, but well, there was one incident where Allison, you know, I, I felt like I needed to prove myself to Allison, because Allison clearly didn't like me. And so, Allison said we were at our cousin's house, and they had a pond lake thing right beside their house and there were a lot of leeches in said pond and Allison said well Kate why don't you swim out to the middle and go and get a rock from the bottom of the lake and me being stupid little kid I was was like okay and I didn't make it very far but that was mean because I think you just left and I was just in the middle of the lake. <laughs> I, I have no memory That's of this okay. but I believe you so I'm not going to be like those other people that are like I don't remember it so it didn't happen listen I was a bitch I get it I'm sorry that I did that to you um, okay. But to be fair, okay. a, that was a like a lake that a lot of people went swimming in. So it wasn't like jump into this leech infested pond that nobody goes into. It is a swimming oh, yeah. lake that people swim in. So very much so. No, you weren't condemning me to like be eaten by piranhas or anything. No, like that. Hmm. So you know, great. So that's anyway. where the name of that cocktail comes from. But all right, guys. Well, let's without further ado jump in wait, but Allison, to. Wait, wait. What? What Allison, happened? What? How are you? Oh, yeah, dude, I'm okay, I'm fine. I Oh, actually, I guess I'm going to New Orleans next week, which I'm very excited about, so I'm looking forward to that. But other than that, everything's the same, as always, okay. and I'm okay with that. Just fun times. Love the monotony, love the schedule. Okay, anyway, without further ado, Kate, would you like to start us off with your story? I would indeed. All right, so my story um, actually takes place in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, on the islands of Hawaii. I am going to be talking about the incredible Queen Liliuokalani, who was the last monarch of the Hawaiian Kingdom, and also the first Hawaiian queen. So, kind of like great and then all. So, anyway, this is a story of both her and also the United States illegal annexation of the Hawaiian Islands, which is pretty brutal and very complicated this is gonna be so fucking sad i i like know a little bit about this woman and it is the worst it is the worst okay and despite it all she just remains so steadfast she really is incredible but just before i get started some sources that i have um wikipedia of course Mm -hmm. um also a pbs american masters video an article on national women's history a britannical article on her all that's interesting.com which actually had some interesting points um a kamehameha schools article and which is a private school in hawaii that is funded by the estate laid down by the royal family still to this day interesting and also the all classical portland article on her musical works because she was a musical genius as well as being a queen she's pretty cool so anyway another quick disclaimer I am not a native Hawaiian speaker, and I do not intend to pronounce or mispronounce any of the Hawaiian words in the story incorrectly. Wait, I just did a double negative. You know what I'm saying. 
But if I do mispronounce something, I am so sorry. You're trying your best is what you're saying. I'm trying my best. And you did, Kate did live in Hawaii for, how how long did you live on the Big Island? Like off and on for like seven years or so. But I never took Hawaiian. So yeah, I should have taken Hawaiian, but I just, I didn't because I was a little 12 year old one. I wanted to go to the beach. So, you know, but now here I am finding out about the history of the Hawaiian Islands, which is real fun. Mm. Real snazzy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Real. Okay. Anyway. <sighs> Queen Liliuokalani was born Liliu Loloku Walania Kamakaeha on September 2nd, 1838 in Honolulu. Well done, by the way. <laughs> that was... I, maybe? Flawless. That was really good. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I figured I would go for speed. <laughs> for that one lightning queen over yeah. here okay yes exactly okay um so as was hawaiian custom her name is associated with an event that happened during the time of her birth unfortunately for her um it just so happened that the most important event happening during her birth was that the queen regent um at the time had an eye infection <laughs> so the word liliu means smarting loloku means tearful Walania means burning pain, and Kamakaeha means sore eyes. <laughs> so you would think that from this name she would be destined to a life of eye infections, but no, I didn't, could not find a single mention of her having an eye infection. Um, she was later baptized as Lydia Kamakaeha, which normally I'm not a fan of baptism or Christian names, but. If I was named after an eye infection, I'd be, I'd be sort of okay with the name Lydia. I don't know. And she was Christian, so right. she was... At least it wasn't a yeast infection. Yeah. I just thought that was so interesting. It, it, that but... is fascinating that they, like, yeah. stuck with that. Like, that was such a tradition that they were, like... But, I mean, it still sounds pretty, so... Oh, it sounds... Yeah, it sounds great. And, I mean, if that's what worked, that's what worked, for sure. But, so, her biological parents were um, a Hawaiian chief and chiefess of House Kalakua, which was sort of a cousin house of House Kamehameha, which had been the ruling house in Hawaii since 1795 when Kamehameha the Great unified the Hawaiian Islands into a single kingdom. So she was sort of like distant, not distantly, but sort of like adjacent to the throne, ascension to the throne. Um, But due to Hawaiian tradition, she was actually given to another couple. This is called Hanai family. Um, In Hawaii, like it's very common for the children to be raised by everybody. And so you have your Hanai parents and you have your biological parents. Mm. It's basically like an informal adoption, but it's not informal. It's pretty formal because th- at that point you're like counted as your Hanai parents' daughter. So it was how, customary. Wait, how do they choose who? Well, so at least in the royal houses of Hawaii, they often would adopt their sons and daughters out to people who were actually of like slightly higher status than them. Mm. Oh. And it was just, it was just very, like, understood. Um, and this happened both in, like, the elite, like, the noble class, and in the common class. So, yeah. Everyone was Hanai. Everyone was related either by blood or via Hanai. So, it's, so it's pretty cool. They would just go and live with them sometimes? Kind of like a, like a almost yeah. divorced parent style where it's, like, every other weekend or every two weeks no, no, ago, like... like- she was like, I guess in a way you could like liken it in to like medieval Europe, like a ward, if that makes sense. Hmm. 
you know, how, like, but that was, like, through through violence and war, how, like, a nobleman would, like, take some other nobleman's son as, like, and, right. like, raise him as his own, you know, that sort sure. of thing. But this is, like, actually, like, nonviolent and just, like, very peaceful. Oh, okay. Yeah. So her Hanai parents were also high chiefs who were close confidants of the king. And Liliuokalani's Hanai mother, Konia, was an avid musician and was also a big influence on Liliuokalani's musical talent. And her sister, her, her Hanai sister, was named Bernice, and they were, like, very close as well. And Liliuokalani said, I knew no other father or mother than my foster parents, no other sister than Bernice. So very, very close. And she grew up at their house. Wow. Yeah. And as you can imagine, the Christian missionaries hated this just hated it could not stand it i'm Classic. sure yeah so she started her education at the royal school when she was four and the school was founded by the king and it was intended to educate the children of hawaiian royalty who all had claim to the throne in some way or another so imagine being in a school where all of you could one day be king or queen holy shit oh my god i wonder what the cliques were like there Oh, God, I can't even imagine. And, like, yeah, because all through, whether it's through blood or Hanai, like, if you're in the royal class or the noble class, there are so many different ways you could To be a fly on the wall and just listen to the conversations, especially the fights they get into. Wow, that is fascinating. I know, pretty wild. Um, Now, what was interesting, though, is the school, even though it was set up by the king, it was run by two American missionaries, and they taught exclusively in English, and the students weren't allowed to use Hawaiian. So even the royal kids in Hawaii weren't allowed to speak Hawaiian. What what year was this exactly? Sorry, if you know. Oh, no, it's okay. She was four, and she was born in 1838, so this is like 1842. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And so... Just a quick history lesson. Lesson: American Christian missionaries first came to Hawaii in 1820, and their descendants um, went into the sugarcane business. So after a couple um, generations, the Christian mar- missionaries owned a lot of land and had a lot of power. And this is important later on. Liliokalani did not have a good time in school, and she often said she went to bed hungry because it was like a boarding school situation. And there was also a measles epidemic while she was in school that killed one of her classmates and her sister. which was rough so she basically went through the whole boarding school thing she took her final exams so she's in her like late teens early 20s after her schooling she marries this american man named john owen dominus who was secretary to king kamehameha the fourth at the time they met it was a love match they had known each other since childhood because he had gone to a school right next to hers and there was one anecdote which is really sweet um relates that he escorted her home from a royal excursion even though he had fallen off his horse and broken his leg. Oh, wait, how? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know how. And I was like, that can't be true. And Did he I, like, get back went... on the horse? Like, I don't know. I went through, like, I was, like, looking for the article that, like, corroborated this. Because I was like, this doesn't make any sense. And there was, like, a paywall. But it looked very official. It looked very academic. So she's like, actually, can you walk on the other side? Your femur bone is tickling my thigh. Yeah. That is, oh, exactly. oh my God. Okay. Wow. I know. But also like how much did he break his leg? Was it like, a, you know, I, I feel like there was. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure his bone wasn't sticking out of his leg, but even just, I had like a very light stress fracture in my foot and I had to be in a boot for two weeks. Like I can't imagine. Yeah. How, actually with an actual yeah. like break. Yeah. Like how romantic. So right? sweet. Um, 
Yeah, so sweet. Um, but the marriage was particularly good for John because through Liliokalani and his connections with the king, he eventually became, this white dude, became the governor of both Oahu and Maui. Oh, wow. So there you go. Um, unfortunately, any love that they had before marriage quickly went away because John was a cheater. And his mom didn't like the fact that he'd married a Hawaiian woman. Classic. They didn't have any kids, but Liliokalani adopted three Hanai children, even though it was against the wishes of her husband and her brother. So, you know, this whole story is basically men trying to tell Queen Liliokalani what to do and her just being like, no. So, um, despite being in a shitty marriage and despite men trying to tell her what to do, uh, Liliokalani got shit done. She went door to door to raise funds for the king and queen to build Hawaii's first hospital, which opened in 1860. Another quick history lesson. Nearly 85% of Native Hawaiians had been killed by diseases brought by white settlers within just 50 oh my years. God. And they still didn't have a hospital. Oh my God. So she was instrumental in making sure that these people were taken care of. In 1864, she and her Hanai sister, Bernice, helped the princess establish the Ka'ahumanu Society, which is a woman-led organization that helped the sick and elderly. And in 1866, at the request of King Kamehameha V, she composed a new Hawaiian national anthem. So just going off of like her incredible music ability, she had perfect pitch. She was a trained singer and choir director. She played piano, guitar, organ, and ukulele. She composed more than 150 mele, or songs and chants, and she remains to this day one of the most performed Hawaiian composers. Oh and I love, she has this quote um, about uh, writing the national anthem. She says, In the early years of the reign of Kamehameha V, he brought to my notice the fact that the Hawaiian people had no national heir. Each nation, he said, but ours, had its expression of patriotism and love of country in its own music. But we were using for that purpose on state occasions the time-honored British anthem, God Save the Queen. Oh, they were using the British one. <laughs> and they were like, this is a bad idea. So this he desired me to supplant by one of my own composition. In one week's time, I notified the king that I had completed my task. So she wrote the national anthem in a week. Um, I know. And Lilu Kalani, who was then serving as choir director at a church in Honolulu, because of course she would be, conducted her choir in the premiere of the new anthem. Wow which was Hey Mele Lahui Hawaii, Song of the Hawaiian Nation. She wrote both the lyrics and the music. But wait, just real fast, before I forget, I know that her story is, like, tragic, and that's not a spoiler. Like, it should be inferred from the fact. Anyway, um, how much of this did you actually learn in school in Hawaii? Like, did you, was it, like, truthful to that, or was it more from the eyes of the white settlers being heroes, and, or was it more from the view of actual Hawaiians that had been affected? That is such a great question, Allison, because I never learned anything. <gasps> about her? What about nope. Hawaiian history? Um, I learned about the Hawaiian creation myth. And like about it. like gods and goddesses and Yeah. Like Maui. So they and didn't stuff. Yeah. teach you the actual history. okay. Okay. Wow. All nope. right. Nope. All right. Really bad. Like what I knew about her and the royals, like King Kamehameha the Great, I learned from my own research or, you know, my parents and I would go to historical sites and, like, literally reading the plaques and stuff. Oh, my God. I know. 
it's bad. Like, when I was reading this, I was like, I know so little. And I fucking lived there. Did you have any Hawaiian teachers? Like, native Hawaiian teachers? Or were they all white? Yeah. No, I mean, we had... It was a very diverse school that I went to. And, I mean, the kids before I got there in sixth grade and through fifth grade, the kids had been actually learning Hawaiian. So they actually might have been taught everything. And then we got to sixth grade and they were like, oh, they know everything. But here I was, like... Oh, so kind of like the Oregon Trail thing where it's, like, fourth, fifth grade. That Okay. Well, let's hope because yeah, possibly. I really hope let's that hope. they would teach that history. Anyway, I'm I'm yeah. gonna stop interrupting you. Yeah. Um, keep going. No, no, you're good. No, please. And and if there's something confusing because it eventually gets a little like muddy on how everything happens, I tried to keep it really simple. But please just jump in if you need clarification. Okay, and this is where things get complicated. So <laughs> great. <laughs> King Kamehameha the fifth dies without an heir. And through a series of elections, a brief riot, general confusion, instability, like, you're not the true heir, you're not really, like, a blood descendant of Kamehameha, you're blah blah blah. Through all sorts of crap, Liliuokalani's brother becomes king, and she's named heir. If you want to look up exactly what happened, it is interesting, but it's, like, very long and very confusing. Okay, so now she's heir to the throne, got it. She's heir to the throne, which means that when her brother leaves, she's regent. So she are, she so her brother leaves in 1881 to do like his world tour as the new king of Hawaii, mm. right? And so she's left in charge, and she fucking kills it. So her first regency while her brother while her brother was gone, she had to handle a smallpox epidemic. She closed all the ports, stopped all passenger vessels from leaving Oahu, quarantined the sick. And the disease was was contained to Oahu with only a couple cases on Kauai. Like, I really wish she'd been around during the COVID pandemic. Did you tell me about like, it. Like, we needed her so badly. Like, she fucking killed it. Damn. Yeah. You know, considering, like, she was in a place that had been so devastated by disease. Yeah. I mean, just really impressive. She also visited the leper colony on the island of Molokai. And she was so, like, overcome with emotion at seeing these people. She afterwards had the government of health set aside land for a hospital specifically for the treatment of leprosy. Oh, my God. I oh, know. she's so good. She's so good. In 1886, she founded a bank for women and helped establish a money lending group for women. She also founded an organization that provided scholarships for Hawaiian girls so that they could attend school. So she was like a hundred and like fifty years before her time. Yes. Oh yes. my god, I'm like getting emotional. That's amazing. I know. Yeah, and what's cool too is like she did this with a lot of her relatives. Like there's just generally a sense that the Hawaiian people were ahead of their time already. You know, setting up scholarships and banks and lending organizations. You know, for women and the sick. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty amazing. Okay, so, in January of 1891, King Kalakaua died and Liliokalani ascended the throne and named her niece, Kaiulani, as her heir. Things were rough from the get-go. Her husband died seven months after she was coronated, and even though, like, they didn't have a great marriage, it's still a big Mm -hmm. loss. And there were a lot of disagreements between the crown and the legislative body of the kingdom. So, two years later, in 1893, she proposed a new constitution, and this is when shit really hit the fan so we're gonna go back in time for just a second to 1887 so six years back in time king kalakaua liliukalani's brother signed a document that stripped him 
of most of his personal authority and gave it to the legislative body, which, you guessed it, <laughs> was controlled by white Americans, mostly sugarcane plantation owners, so the descendants of the Christian missionaries that came over in 1820. It removed the monarch's power to appoint legislators and changed the qualifications to be a legislator in the first place. Um, so you had to be a wealthy landowner to be in the legislative body, and that basically eliminated the possibility of Native Hawaiians being in the legislature. It also changed the suffrage law so that you had to meet a certain economic threshold to vote. So basically, after the king signed this document, the Hawaiian kingdom was in control of white landowners and businessmen. Now, why, why the hell did the king sign this? Doesn't make any sense. Well, that's because he was threatened with death if he didn't, um, which is great. Yeah, because of the violence associated. This is the worst thing I've ever heard in my life, Kate. I'm so sorry. No, like, it's really good to be shared. I'm like, so you didn't learn anything about Hawaiian history. I sure as hell, my landlocked ass never heard an ounce of Hawaiian history until I visited you in Hawaii. So, like, Lilo and Stitch was the only thing I knew about Hawaii growing up, as I think most people listening can probably relate to. Yeah. Well, and I just feel like this is something that is, like, like going off of the idea of, like, Thanksgiving and, like, the myth of Thanksgiving yeah. and how the pilgrims and the Native Americans, like, broke bread together and everyone was happy. I feel like this is something that is completely swept under the rug mm-hmm. that no one talks about. And it's only been recently, like, especially with the Mauna Kea protests, that this has become, like, more talked about. And it's just, I mean, it's, like, so much worse than you could even imagine just the way they did this just fucking like game of thrones Mm -hmm. usurping style just anyway so because of the violence associated with this document it became known as the bayonet constitution because they basically i mean figuratively held a bayonet to the king's neck if he didn't sign this so fast forward back to 1893 queen liliokalani wants to get rid of the bayonet constitution understandably um, and she wants to replace it with a new one because it would be better. But her opponents in the legislative branch are just like appalled at her audacity as the queen. Um, <laughs> what gives her the right? They start, <laughs> yeah. like, right. What gives her the right to be a queen? <laughs> like what? <laughs> so they start hatching a plan and they're not very secret about it. They start hatching a plan to depose her, overthrow the monarchy and annex Hawaii to the U.S. And everyone knows about this plan. And all her friends and confidants, like Queen Liliuokalani's confidants, are like, just don't do anything. Like, you'll just be a queen in name, but just don't, like, it's better than losing the monarchy. And she was like, no, because if I'm going to be a queen, I'm going to be a queen. And I'm going to represent the Hawaiian people and I'm going to advocate for their rights. She actually wanted to rule and do right by her people, which is, you know, what a concept. Um, But long story short, and I mean long Mm -hmm. story short. There was a military coup. There was a standoff between a bunch of U.S. Marines. The U.S. sent military reinforcements to Honolulu. And basically there was a standoff between the fucking U.S. military and several hundred men who were tasked with protecting the queen, like out in front of the palace. The queen is like, okay, clearly we're outnumbered. There's nothing we can do here. And no shots were ever fired because the queen surrendered to prevent bloodshed. And I have the, her statement of surrender, quote unquote surrender. 
I, Liliokalani, by the grace of God and under the constitution of the kingdom, queen, do hereby solemnly protest against any and all acts done against myself and the constitutional government of the Hawaiian kingdom by certain persons claiming to have established a provision government of and for this kingdom. Then I yield to the superior force of the United States of America, whose minister plenipotentiary, I have never seen that word before, um, His Excellence John L. Stevens has caused the United States troops to be landed at Honolulu and declared that he would support the said provisional government. Now, to avoid any collision of armed forces and perhaps the loss of life, I do under this protest and impelled by said force yield my authority until such time as the government of the United States shall, upon the facts being presented to it, undo the action of its representative and reinstate me in the authority which I claim as the constitutional sovereign of the Hawaiian Islands. So... I love the fact that she surrendered while protesting. Yeah, no, she really said fuck you, but also, like, okay, but also, like, I'm gonna, like, make us think about this. Yeah, like, at no point was she ever complaining. How many years did she actually technically, like, rule for? And also, do you know how old she was? Because, like, in my brain, that's how time passes. No, that's fair. Um, she ruled for three years, and she would have been in her mid-50s. Okay, okay. When this happened. Yeah. But then, you know, a provisional government was established, led by a guy named Sanford B. Dole. Now, Allison, have you... Does the name Dole ring any bells for you? Like Dole Whip? Mm-hmm. Think a little... Yeah, Dole Like Whip. pineapple? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it for me, but I know that it's very problematic. So Dole Whip is made with Dole pineapples, and it's the same family. Dole Hawaiian pineapples. So this guy, Sanford B. Dole, was not... He was like... Uh, he was related to the guy who started the Dole Pineapple Company, which is, like, still a thing, which is fucking crazy. But that also just goes to show you that Hawaii was governed by these white business men. Yeah. Like, they weren't actually, like, government entities or anything. So, the U.S. flag was raised over the royal palace, and the entire kingdom was placed under martial law. The queen wrote a letter to the U.S. President Grover Cleveland, who investigated the coup and concluded that the U.S.'s annexation of the Hawaiian Islands was done illegally. Oh! So, yeah, the Queen wrote to the president of the U.S., Grover, who I don't know anything else that Grover did, but he did this right. Okay, all I know is Grover Cleveland was really fat and he was elected twice as a Democrat, and I only know that because that's a direct quote from the Animaniacs song that lists all the presidents in order. Oh, wow, okay, yeah, because it rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and no, the, literally, Animaniacs got me through high school. I only know this, all the states and capitals because of them and also the presidents. Wow. Grover Cleveland really fat, elected twice as a Democrat. So boom, okay. there. You just got learned, bitch. Keep going. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to learn you some more. So yeah, he... <laughs> <laughs> so she wrote a fucking letter to him and he was like, yeah, that seems fishy. Let me investigate. Does the investigation finds that it was illegally done. But Congress was like, nah. And they did their own investigation and found all parties involved except the queen and those associated with her are innocent. So now they're saying the queen is guilty of, like, treason or something. Okay, fuck off with that. Which is just, like, what? Anyway, so, yeah. Kudos to President Grover Cleveland, but, wow, really. I mean, the fucking U.S. president was on her side. And it didn't matter. I mean, I think that that goes anyway. to show... I mean, honestly, it's exactly the same way today. 
where like i mean you just saw obama tried to do so much but like it was just every one of his ideas was just shot down by congress like congress really has all the power and like the house of representatives yeah. and it's kind of like the queen of england may she rest in peace it is a similar thing where it's like the queen or the king of england is more of a public figure they don't have as much power as like they seem to have like their their word isn't final it has to go through a bunch of different people and it seems similar now like maybe yeah. she got through to the president but like that's not who was important to get through to right well and i'm like i'm sure people in congress had like vested interests in hawaii you know like family members who owned plantations and stuff i mean it was all about capital it was all about money and they loved dole whip yeah they Just, dole whip was oh, the shit yeah. so <laughs> oh these assholes okay <laughs> I know. Okay, so the illegal provisional government became the Republic of Hawaii on, you guessed it, July 4th, 1895. (laughs) Was that on purpose? I don't know. I don't know. But this was the first sovereign nation that the U.S. had, like, taken over. And I just, I'm like, did they not understand the irony Or, like, was there anything going through their heads? Was the hypocrisy even, like, could they even get a whiff of the hypocrisy? Like, what the fuck was going through their heads? Oh, my God. Wait, I'm sorry. I'm still... Okay. Yep. So... Okay. (laughs) Sanford Dole is president. Awesome. Pineapples. Um, And then uh, Hawaii was eventually officially annexed as a U.S. territory three years later in 1898 in the month of July. I don't know if it was actually July 4th, but the Republic of Hawaii was, you know, became official on July 4th. Damn. So then they basically held um, a bunch of Queen Liliuokalani's friends and allies people loyal to her arrested and some of them were facing death sentences for, I don't know, you know, being loyal to their, their, you know, queen. So then Liliuokalani was forced to officially abdicate the throne. Otherwise her friends would be killed. And this is what she said for myself. I would have chosen death rather than to have signed it, but it was represented to me that by use that by my signing this paper, all the persons who had been arrested, all my people now in trouble by reason of their love and loyalty towards me would immediately be released. Think of my position, sick, a lone woman in prison, scarcely knowing who was my friend or who listened to my words only to betray me without legal advice or friendly counsel and the stream of blood ready to flow unless it was stayed by my pen. Like, they just put her in the absolute worst positions. She had no control. Oh, my God. Just, just abhorrent. Um, so, Lilio Kalani was imprisoned in an upstairs room of the palace soon after the coup. Originally, she was tried and found guilty of treason? Question mark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, she was sentenced to five years of hard labor, but they commuted her sentence to house arrest, which, you know... Okay, and then she said that first night of my imprisonment was the longest night I have ever passed in my life. It seemed as though the dawn of day would never come. I am imprisoned in this room for the attempt of the Hawaiian people to regain what had been wrested from them. Oh my fucking god. I know, I know. Um, okay, over a year later, she was pardoned by the U.S. government. I, like, uh, what the- <laughs> She didn't do anything. Like, the people who committed treason- were the people who, like... Were accusing her of it. Yeah, no, it's yeah, completely exactly. backwards. 
It's completely backwards. Um, and she was released in October of 1896. So during her imprisonment, she wrote a lot of music and her perfect pitch served her well because she had no access to a piano or any instruments, but she was still able to compose music just by singing to herself and then writing it down. She credits her musical ability as one of the main reasons she was able to cope with everything going on. And she says, To compose was as natural to me as to breathe, and this gift of nature, never having been suffered to fall into disuse, remains a source of the greatest consolation to this day, hours of which it is not yet in place to speak, which I might have found long and lonely, passed quickly and cheerfully, by, occupied and soothed by the expression of my thoughts in music, and even when I was denied the aid of an instrument, I transcribed to paper the tones of my voice. So, during her imprisonment was when she composed Aloha Oi. Yeah. Which also means farewell to thee. And it's probably one of the most famous Hawaiian songs, if not the most fam famous Hawaiian song. And the original story behind the song was that the queen had, uh, was inspired to write it after she saw a Hawaiian officer receiving a lei from a Hawaiian girl as a parting gift. But the other meaning of the song, of course, has become the collective mourning of the Hawaiian people over the loss of their sovereignty. Funnily enough, if you go on Spotify and look up Aloha Oi, the first, like, two people that come up are fucking Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. I'm not and then surprised. Bing Crosby. <laughs> <laughs> which I find really funny. There are a lot of really beautiful renditions of it, and I encourage everybody to go listen. Don't listen to the Elvis Presley version, please, for the love of God. God he is... loved Hawaii, but some things must left, be left untouched. Yeah. I do have a question yeah. for you. What, what were the Hawaiian people's reaction to all of this? Like, were there uprisings? Like, were they in full support of her? Like, how, how did they react to this? Yeah, I mean... It was, it was complicated because a lot of, um, there were several like native Hawaiian powerful, like business businessmen who were sort of in bed with the white businessmen. And so, you know, even when it came to the, the overthrow, there were native Hawaiian businessmen involved actually, because I think they felt they could profit off of it. Overall though, I would say the Hawaiian people were livid yeah i can't over Ugh. what was going on but they couldn't do anything because everything was under martial law and the because of the bayonet constitution that had been signed into law like six years earlier so many of their rights had already been stripped and that like over time that taking effect of them not being in the legislative body them not being able to vote you know it took its toll i mean it was per it, it was like this is a real life game of chess Damn. The way that they, like, checkmated the Hawaiian monarchy was just... But it but it already started out on an uneven field. Right. You know? Right. And so, yeah, no, the Hawaiian people were really, really upset, but they had already had hundreds of years of oppression, and 85% of their population was decimated. Fucking and hell. I know. It's so... Ugh. It's just so gross. I mean, basically, the sugar plantation and the pineapple plantation owners wore down the Hawaiian people, and then they just took it. I hate white people. I know. I can say that confidently. As a white person, we collectively suck um, entirely. Yes, we do. Yeah. Okay. Very much so. Okay. <clears throat> so after she was released, Lulu Galani spent a lot of time between Honolulu and Washington, D.C. Sorry, there's a 
prime truck. Can you tell it to shut the my... fuck up? We're her podcasting. Oh my god, I'm talking about Queen Liliuokalani. <laughs> Amazon. It's Amazon. Don't even get it me is, it's prime. started oh. on Amazon. <laughs> it would. You know what? It would be fucking Amazon that interrupts this story. It, it really would be. It would. Genuinely. <sighs> okay. Okay. I'm good. <clears throat> She spent a lot of time between Honolulu and Washington, D.C., talking to people, networking, meeting congressmen who had called her a traitor, doing all that good stuff, basically spending all her time as a voice for the Hawaiian people. Um, She focused mainly on securing reparations for Hawaii, as opposed to trying to reclaim her throne, because she realized that was probably a lost cause. She did sue the U.S. in 1909 to have some of the royal lands in Hawaii returned to her and like the royal family. Um, but she didn't win, obviously. Right. Yeah, so in the only thing that Hawaii ever saw in reparations was the US government gave Liliuokalani a pension of twelve hundred bucks a month for the rest of her life. That was all they paid. Was that like the equivalent to to twelve hundred dollars or was it 1900 version of $1,200. Not that the amount matters nine- because they literally stole her entire culture from her and destroyed it. So. Yeah. I I think it is 1200 and 1900s money. So it's not, it was like, she had, she lived a cush life. Like at least there's that, but that was like, they were like, okay, we'll concede. She, I mean, she was asking for reparations for the kingdom for the people of Hawaii. And they were like, okay, we'll pay, we'll just give you, can you just take this little bit of money? And like, I don't know. Like I know she'd much rather like live on a tent in the beach and have her people have freedom than live a lavish lifestyle and then have her culture being entirely repressed. So, oh, this is so frustrating. I know. It's really bad. So, okay. But some other cool shit that she did during this time Lilio Galani always had a very broad interest in faith and religion in general, and she considered herself a Christian. She was baptized in the Christian faith. And she also, but she also showed interest in Buddhism and Shintoism. But she also had a little bit of an interest in Mormonism. Mormon. And in 1901, yes. <laughs> in 1901, she traveled to Utah to visit with the Mormon president who had been a Mormon missionary in Hawaii. I know, I know. This is the only thing where I'm like, what, what you up to? Watch you up to girlfriend. But um, in, so in 1906, the Mormon newspapers claimed that she'd converted to the LDS faith. And that, that was entirely false. Like her, her state was like, what? That never happened. But they were like, yeah, she did. She totally like, did. Like we had lunch. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> we had lunch together. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Literally oh like they God. had lunch and then the Mormons were like, well, she converted. No. Okay. She never converted, but I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, I'm sure she fucking didn't. She probably got one whiff of that guy and his, like, 114-year-old wives and were like, um, fastest ship back to Hawaii, por favor, immediately, please. <laughs> yeah. No, and apparently, like, her interest in it waned, like, dramatically oh, after I entirely believe that. Because the way it was presented to her was probably the way that Joseph Smith presented it to other people. Which is like magic golden plates, all this stuff, we're being repressed, mm-hmm. we're fleeing across the country to make lives for ourselves. She probably related to him and them having been like repressed and like killed by other people. And so I'm sure she was like hoping to find some solace in this person and then saw mm-hmm. that it was actually just 
another white man with insane influence over the people he's controlling and she was like we're gonna leave early oh that's really rough i know i know i just thought that was so funny like the audacity of the mormons to even claim of course they Um, would though of course they they totally would they totally would in 1909 she established the queen liliokalani trust her entire estate went towards supporting orphaned and destitute children and this trust is still functioning today (gasps) yeah yeah. So Queen Liliokalani died at her home in Honolulu on November 11th, 1917 at the age of 79. During her funeral procession, a children's choir sang Aloha Oe. <laughs> and the Christian advocate, I don't know why that paper was the thing in Hawaii, um, reported that elderly Hawaiian attendees were particularly moved. The quote is, Tears flowed fast down their cheeks as they sensed the actuality of the departure of every vestige of former royalty and the existence of the monarchy from Iolani Palace. The spirit of Liliokalani had winged its way to eternity. And that is the story of the indomitable Queen Liliokalani and the illegal annexation of the Hawaiian Islands by the United States. (sighs) Yep. I'm speechless. That was, I can't even imagine their heartbreak watching their last, basically the last voice of their culture die. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. And her heir, um, a parent, her niece, Kaiulani, died in 1899 at age 24. So she was like the last person. Yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, she had a long and, like, incredible life, and her philanthropy is still serving the people of Hawaii today, which is just incredible. And her Hanai sister, Bernice, set up the Kamehameha schools, which are still functioning today, and if you are a native Hawaiian kid, you can go to the Kamehameha schools for free. Oh, so her sister that died was her biological sister not correct okay yeah oh my god dude like are is the palace still intact or did they destroy it uh it is still intact i think um yeah i think you can visit it in honolulu yeah and i'm pretty sure the hospital that she helped raise funds for the queen's hospital is like the same hospital system that's running in hawaii today Wow. So, I mean, it's like pretty, they're, the royals, the monarchy's legacy in Hawaii, despite all the bullshit, is pretty incredible. I'm sorry, you probably don't know this off the top of your head, but having lived there, I'm wondering, are there any efforts to restore parts of the culture? Are there any efforts being made to implement more of, of like a self-sustaining government? Like, is there anything like we could do? Obviously... I don't know. I mean, I, I know probably the best thing we could do is give them like a million dollars and just like say goodbye. We're never going to visit you again. But I mean, is there anything like any support that they would need? Like what's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like with the, the Mauna Kea protests, you know, against the 30 meter telescope on top of Mauna Kea on the big island, I feel like a lot of like the Hawaiian sovereignty movement was brought to light. And I like there is a continuing effort to bring back Hawaiian sovereignty. There are some in Hawaii who want the monarchy back. And then there are some who just are like, 
the islands of Hawaii were illegally annexed and we deserve to be our own sovereign nation. Yeah. Like a, no, 100%. our own democratic nation. Yeah. So there's also even like, there's some conflict between like the people who are still royalists, which like in my personal opinion, I think the world has moved past monarchy. I think Lily Wokolani is an incredible example of an incredible queen, but as we've seen, monarchy doesn't always go that great. So I think for the most part, yeah, there is a very big movement to get their own sovereignty. The only issue is that there are, again, it comes back to the economy, which is exactly how like the monarchy was usurped in the beginning. The tourism economy is so strong in Hawaii. And so if they were to like break away from the United States, they would lose a ton of their tourism. I mean, that's the number one industry in Hawaii. And also in terms of a military presence, for the U.S. I mean, that's why there were so many people fighting over the Hawaiian Islands to begin with. I mean, the British and the Japanese and the Americans, because everyone wants Pearl Harbor, essentially, and Midway. I mean, strategically, like, there's there's no conceivable way the U.S. would ever give up Hawaii. The other issue, too, is, like, Hawaii. <laughs> if Hawaii was to be a sovereign nation, and I absolutely think it should be, they would need... A military like nobody's business oh shit yeah to keep other people from like snagging it like china or japan or anybody because they would try like yeah oh that sucks okay yeah they're in a really shitty position so it's like it's really frustrating so i don't really know what we can do i think it was really important during the pandemic when there was all that discourse about like don't go to hawaii on your like COVID unemployment money. That's a terrible idea. There's a history of disease and, you know, oppression of Native American peoples and Native Hawaiians and sort of inadvertently through disease oppressing those populations. So don't do that. So I think there are, there's more like discourse going on about that. And I think people are less inclined to go to Hawaii as tourists just because they're kind of aware of that colonizing force that comes with tourism but on the other hand that's like their entire economy yeah it's a hard position yeah it's tricky well kate that was yeah an incredible story i knew a little bit about her but i this was in depth like it was so much more than i could have even imagined and the heartbreak that she must have experienced and the story behind the song aloha oi has like stuck with me ever since i learned that fact and it's absolutely yeah. tragic and i think you did a great job for covering it and i think that's when people think of indigenous people being fucked over by the american government it's most of the time they think of native americans they a lot of times mm-hmm. i feel like the struggle of native hawaiians is swept under the rug because it's a literal island away from everybody and like out of sight out of mind and so i i think it's good for you to kind of i don't know bring attention back to that because that's not something that i know that i've thought about a lot um, in my lifetime yeah. so yeah no it is important and we forget about it we forget about like I think I feel like Alaska has like a similar issue mm-hmm. as well because it's not like part of the continental U.S. yeah so yeah well thanks for listening yeah, um you did great. it was quote-unquote fun to research it was fun at the beginning with her like growing Absolutely. up and then I just got angry <laughs> well I I can't wait to hear what you have to say I'm so excited. Great, thank you.
Okay, Kate. Thank you again. That was great. Now, I'm going to tell you a story about a Native American woman who lived in the mid-18, late 1800s. And it's a story that I had never heard. The things that she did are worth knowing about. So, my articles for this are a Mental Floss article by Ray Kavanaugh, an article from Amazing Women in History by Rosemary Agonito, and a few articles by Wikipedia. And Kate, today I'm going to tell you about Buffalo Calf Road Woman and the true story of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Okay, I've heard of the Battle of Little Bighorn, but I have not heard of this woman. Have you ever heard of Custer's Last Stand? Yes. Not surprised. Okay. Do you what? Yeah. Okay, actually, real fast, what do you know about Custer's Last Stand? If you can remember anything. You know what? I don't know jack shit about Custer's Last Stand. Apparently, but, I've heard of it, but I did. But I that's what it's. That's what's important is that you have heard of it, and you've probably learned about it several times throughout your education, and also you probably learned about it in your education in Hawaii. So let's just think about that for a minute. So in honor of Native American Heritage Month, I wanted to tell you a little known story of one of the most incredible women I have ever read about. Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Little is known about her until recently when her story, part of which had remained a secret for over 130 years, was finally told. Mm -hmm. What? Okay. (laughs) Details of Buffalo Calf's early life are scarce, but it is speculated she was born in the 1850s. She belonged to the Cheyenne tribe in Montana and was married to a warrior named Black Coyote. Together, they had two children. By the 1970s, white colonizers were invading deeper and deeper into native land and tensions were rising. The Cheyenne and other tribes with them endured attacks, massacres and forced removal from their land to reservations they fought hard against the white men and one of their most legendary war heroes was buffalo calf road woman oh i love that she's a war hero sorry that that's kind of oh she totally is okay okay at this time in history it was almost unheard of for a woman to fight in the battle however Buffalo Calf was a proud Cheyenne woman who would do anything to protect her tribe, even if that meant going against the wishes of every one of her male Cheyenne warriors. She was the only woman to do so. So there are two battles in particular that stand out from the rest, and the most notable battle is what white Americans know as the Battle of the Rosebud. In June of 1876, a war between the invading army of settlers and native tribes had started in Montana. The invading army pushed the tribes back closer and closer to their village. Buffalo Calf, who was now in her early 20s, saw the settlers getting nearer and nearer, and she did something no other woman in her tribe dared to do. Without permission, she mounted her horse and rode into battle in hopes of helping force the colonizing army off their land. What? I know. Oh, she's so cool. Okay. I'm getting chills. I know. (laughs) She's so cool. Like, I teared up at least a hundred times. If I cry, I actually, I might cry reading this story. It's just so good. Anyway, 
Amidst the chaos of the battle, Buffalo Calf noticed her brother. Chief comes in sight. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Kate, it's not funny. Shut up. Okay, okay. No, it's not. Okay, let's, let's restart. Let's restart. Okay. <laughs> okay. Buffalo Calf noticed her brother. Chief comes in sight. Trapped in a goalie without his horse. The enemy was closing in around him and his fellow warriors watched remorsefully thinking that rescue was impossible. That's when Buffalo Calf rode past the hesitating warriors and amidst flying bullets, she charged into the goalie. She reached her brother just in time and pulled him up onto her horse. Together, they rode out of the goalie to safety and miraculously, Buffalo Calf escaped unharmed. Dude, this is shit you only see in movies. Right? Like, literally, these war, these like warriors that had fought in so many battles were all watching like there's nothing we can do they were i don't want to call them cowards but they weren't brave enough to risk it to go and rescue their chief their war chief and yeah what she saw was her brother in danger and so she didn't even hesitate and she ran past them and saved his life without getting struck by any of the bullets like it is a it's a miracle but oh my god i i I cannot believe the horse was able to carry the weight of her massive balls i just it's (laughs) insane to me um holy shit she was oh just so cool okay Uh this incredible rescue was witnessed by other native warriors Her courage and bravery rallied these warriors, and they ended up defeating the invading army. Because of their victory, her people named the battle after her, calling it (gasps) the battle where the girl saved her brother, and they started calling her Brave Woman. Oh! (laughs) Okay. Battle for her- Wow. Okay. Okay, yeah. And again, we, the white people- we were taught it as being known as the Battle of the Rosebud. But to them, it's called the Battle Where the Girl Saved Her Brother. And I, I for one, choose to change the name to that forever. So, Yeah, yeah. Quick question. Yeah. Why was it called the Battle of the Rosebud? It happened on a piece of land that was called the Rosebud or, like, the Rosebud River or something. Like, uh-huh. it, it happened in that area, so... I mean, good question, so but it was like a, it was just like a name of the piece of land or the location of where they were at. So that's why they named it that. Not very creative. Um, no, they should have named it the battle where that girl kicked her ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been way more honest, wouldn't it? Yeah. Okay. So news of the settlers defeat spread quickly. One week later. One week later, Kate, one week, on June 25th, 1876, General Custer led his troops to the banks of the Little Bighorn River, where several tribes were camping, including the Cheyenne. So from, like, what I know, like, a lot of the tribes are pretty nomadic, and they would, like, never really stay in the same place for too long. So at this point, they had moved past where the Battle of Rosebud had happened, and they had moved their camp to the banks of the Little Bighorn River. And this is where Custer found them. So, confident that victory would be quick, Custer ordered his troops to attack. Little did he know that he wasn't attacking a small, helpless Indian village, 
but rather the main Cheyenne and Sioux encampment. Oh, dear. Custer's army had Native American scouts from the Crow tribe working with them. I didn't look too much into that. I'm not really sure the relationship behind that, but a lot of the the white settlers did have Native American allies, which I can't really comprehend, but I'm sure they were promised, like, land or something. I don't know. Survival. Living. Sur- Deadass. Like, <laughs> probably. Like, can't beat them, join them, so... Right. Okay, so Custer's army had Native American scouts from the Crow tribe who, was, uh, who were working with them. One scout warned him not to invade, saying this was the largest village he'd ever seen. And he's been in Native American tribes for over 30 years, and this is the largest village he'd ever seen. And, oh, dear. Yeah. And so, but Custer was like, nah, I'm still going to do it. And so... <laughs> That's a quote, Did by the way. Did he say in that voice? Yeah, deadass. Yeah, it is say. a quote. Hey, I'm still gonna <laughs> uh, Stop it, stupid face. <laughs> and so, with an impending sense of doom, the Crow Scout prophetically warned Custer, quote, You and I are going home today by a road we do not know. End quote. Whoa, chills. Right? The goosebumps mm-hmm. just went up my arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Custer huh? ignored the warning and rallied his troops, and at noon that day, Custer and an army of over 210 men attacked. They were met with over 3,000 Native American warriors. <laughs> 3,000 Native American warriors led by Lakota war chief, Crazy Horse, who is very famous. I, I don't know a ton about him, but he was an infamous war chief who fought hard against the settlers 3,000 against 210 ish okay so once again buffalo calf mounted her horse and rode with her people to fight against the invading army during the previous battle a week before she had proved her bravery but during this battle she would prove her strength oh my god thank you i wrote that myself wow (laughs) i know right (laughs) Armed with a pistol in one hand and a club in the other, she fought hard. The other woman in the tribes watched from a distance. One of these female eyewitnesses recounts, quote, Most of the women looking at the battle stayed out of reach of the bullets, as did I. But there was one who went in close at times. Her name was Calf Road Woman. She had a six-shooter with bullets and powder, and she fired many shots at the soldiers. She was the only woman there who had a gun. Oh, cool. End quote. So cool. Okay. And also, okay, by all accounts, she was an incredible shot. So she wasn't missing. And I did need to include this. So one of the key witnesses that testifies about this battle was named Big Headed Kate, which is ironically what I call you behind your back. (laughs) And she was one of the women yeah. who witnessed the battle. Yeah, that's fair. I, I would have been there, too. I That was me. I mean, I, I, you can't go into battle with that big-ass head of yours. You're too much of a target. <laughs> too, too, big a, yeah. <laughs> too big of a target. Um, 
moving on past that uh, funny little anecdote that had me absolutely crying laughing in my chair when I read it, there's rumors and accounts of a buffalo calf riding into battle with a baby strapped to her back. But what? I... So, for some researchers, and also myself, don't think that that's real. Not that I'm, like, anything compared to these researchers. But if there were a... If there every single woman on all the tribes are on the sidelines watching, why would she put her fucking baby on her back when she can just give it to Sally in the tent next door to, like, watch over for a few hours? Yeah. It, it's just... I don't... She doesn't seem like the type of person who would risk her child's life on purpose, but she also is not here to fuck around, and so she would take the necessary precautions, too. I don't know. But anyway, so yeah, I think that that was kind of one of those myths that was added to spice it up. Not that this story needs to be spiced up, but anyway. So Buffalo Calf fought in the Battle of Little Bighorn. She fought out in the open, never or very rarely taking cover, and she remained on her horse the entire time. She even rescued another young man who lost his horse and she rode him to safety, just like she did for her brother a week before. But, Kate, these aren't the reasons that she is so legendary. They're part of it for sure, but not the reason. It is well known that Custer died in this battle along with his entire army, right? But Mm -hmm. the exact cause of his death is still unknown and largely speculated. The only eyewitnesses that remained alive to tell the story of the Battle of Little Bighorn were Native American, and their history is only passed orally and not through writing. In 2005, a Cheyenne elder named Frank Rowland came forward with a secret that had been passed down from chief to chief for over 130 years. What? Quote. I'm tearing up. I know, right? Okay. Quote. The chief said to keep a vow of silence for 100 summers. 100 summers have now passed and we're breaking our silence. End quote. He said that according to the eyewitness accounts of the warriors who survived the battle, the blow that killed Custer was delivered by none other than Buffalo Calf Road Woman. Yeah, it was. Uh, Fuck yeah. She, oh my god, that's... Oh. <laughs> so- <laughs> She allegedly charged towards Custer, club in hand, and hit him so hard that he flew off the back of his horse and fell to the ground. Oh my god. And remember, she had a gun, but maybe she was out of bullets, but she chose to get up close and personal with this son of a bitch, and she clobbered him yeah. to the ground. Well, yeah, this bitch doesn't deserve a bullet. He, uh, Not a bullet to the head. Well, a club to the well, head. Well, well... Well, Kate might have spoke a little bit too soon on that. We'll come back to that in a minute. So (laughs) anyway, the Northern Cheyenne said that they never publicly released this information before because they feared retribution from the U.S. government. And I don't blame them for that one bit. Yeah. Because Custer was one of the, quote, best generals of his time. He won several huge battles in the Civil War, and he rose to ranks and fame to become one of the most well-known generals in American history. You can ask probably any child who grew up in the United States, and if you say Custer's last stand, they will know what you're talking about, right? And so not knowing the exact manner of Custer's death is something that has bothered historians for over 100 years. 
it, it kind of reminds me, and I don't think it's up to this level, but it's kind of the same thing where we still don't know who officially assassinated John F. Kennedy. And it's something mm. that's, like, full of conspiracy theories. While it's not nearly to that level, it's still to the level of which, at that time, one of the best war generals was killed along with all of his men and they're still not entirely sure what happened because the only people who saw it were native americans and they took a vow of silence wow so it's not clear exactly what happened after custer fell from his horse but frank roland again the the cheyenne elder who broke the silence stated that quote he meaning custer wasn't touched by the warriors because he was unclean he was a bad medicine end quote but just because the warriors wouldn't touch the bodies of custer and his men didn't mean that the woman wouldn't wallace Bercham oh. is the director of tribal services for the uh, for the northern cheyenne he says that buffalo calf and other cheyenne and sioux women quote finished off custer and the other cavalry soldiers right after the battle was over going from soldier to soldier to finish them off or take things from them remembering relatives killed by u.s soldiers in previous attacks wow mm -hmm. a u.s i know right it's insane <laughs> oh god a u.s scouting party found custer's nude body two days later with two bullet holes in his head it is unclear whether it was the bullets or the initial blow from buffalo calf that killed him but either way buffalo calf was instrumental in his death and if we're if we're thinking about if we think about what um, Wallace Bercham said about the women going off and finishing off all the men because the warriors didn't want to fucking touch them, it could very well be that she and that she gave the blow that knocked him off his horse and then she shot him twice in the fucking head with her pistol that she had on her at point blank yeah. range. Like it's completely possible that she did all of those things or that in the very least she might've knocked him off, knocked him unconscious. And then he was shot to ensure that he was dead or she knocked him off his horse and that made him vulnerable enough to get shot by other people. Wow. I feel like two bullets in the head though, that like that's indicative to me of like someone standing over him and just like making sure in his head. I, I would agree you with know? that. Yeah, actually. Okay. So one bullet hole was in his left temple. And so a lot of historians and like believed that maybe he took his own life because it was like it was obviously shot right mm. close to his temple. And it is also speculated that some of his men, once they knew the battle was lost, took their own lives as well with shots to the temple. But Custer was right-handed. And so oh. him shooting himself in the left temple isn't exactly indicative of what actually happened. And so hmm. a lot of them think that once they had lost the battle, their lives were taken at close range with guns by the Native Americans. And I would assume that Custer met a similar fate to that. So, By yeah. the way, he was knocked I, over the fucking head. Anyway, continue. No, I was gonna, I just think it's also so interesting that, like, the men were scared of touching something unclean, mm -hmm. and yet the women were like, nah, I would, I will happily go and rummage through these guys' pockets. And, and finish them, them off. The yeah, like, literally, if they're still alive, <laughs> you know, finish them that's off. That's pretty amazing. But I don't know how yeah. much of that is maybe, like, a legend in the tribe of warrior men touching other warrior men who are deceased maybe that like brings like bad 
energy or bad juju mm-hmm. or bad luck mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. women it doesn't count as much because they're like not warriors but so i'm not sure yeah. exactly on that but it could be like legend or like lore on the tribe or known in the tribe that that specific thing is bad luck but either way the woman did step up to the plate and were like we got this um anyway so she was instrumental in his death and the american government has since come to also refer to this battle as custer's last stand again which you've heard of i have heard of and i would assume most people have heard of and in doing so in calling it Custer's last stand, they paint him as a war hero who fought for a good cause. Only a few- Yeah, there was no- No, go ahead. Please continue. Sorry. I was gonna say, there's nothing last standish about this. No, he he didn't die like a heroic (laughs) death. Like, it wasn't like him alone on the battlefield surrounded by his dead colleagues with the sword fighting them off. Like, like Aragorn style or something. I don't know. It's- there's nothing- yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So stupid. So only a few years after the battle, in 1881, a memorial was erected at the site of the battle to honor Custer and the fallen soldiers. Today, a stone obelisk stands at the top of the hill with each of the soldiers' names carved into the stone. It wasn't until 1999 that the Native Americans were also honored with their own memorial at Last Stand Hill. 1999 oh my god oh my god Mm -hmm. so i wish i could say that we ended here and that (laughs) buffalo calf and her tribe went on to live long and happy lives but i think we all know that that's not true after the defeat of the u.s troops at little bighorn the u.s government pursued the cheyenne tribe relentlessly five months after the battle of little bighorn the cheyenne village was located and attacked by soldiers More than 40 natives were murdered, many wounded, and their village was burned to the ground. Oh my god. Buffalo Calf and some of her tribe were able to escape the soldiers, but in the fires, they lost the best of their clothing and blankets. And at this point, it was five months later, it was winter, and Buffalo Calf and her people had to flee the soldiers in a blizzard. That first night was so cold that 11 babies froze to death. Oh my god. I know, sorry. In the words of Jess Nani, oh <laughs> my god. <laughs> oh, well done. That's yeah, that's exactly Thank what you. that is. Yeah, that's <laughs> good one. That's funny. So the natives continued to be relentlessly pursued. Slowly, most of the Cheyenne surrendered, but despite being pregnant with her second child, Buffalo Calf refused to surrender along with a group of about 30 other Cheyenne. Eventually, however, because the conditions were so horrible and because the U.S. Army promised them land, the small group eventually gave up. They were sent south from Montana to Oklahoma. They marched on foot the whole way, and when they finally arrived, they discovered how inhospitable the land actually was. There were unfamiliar tribes, unknown diseases, and a completely different climate than what they were used to. In fact, the conditions were so bad that Buffalo Calf and a group of around 300 other Cheyenne natives vowed to return home. They escaped during the night, mostly on foot, and began their harsh journey back north. Wait, so they walked to Oklahoma? Yes, 
And then they're like, fuck Oklahoma. Yes. And they turned around. Big fat U-turn and went home. It was 1,500 miles back, so it was at least 1,500 miles there. Bruh. And they were doing this, I think, in, like, the winter or at least in maybe the early spring. But either way, I can't even fathom walking that far. Like, it must have been so bad in Oklahoma for them to be like, we can't do this and to leave. And not only that, but it was like they they escaped. It, like, they weren't allowed to leave. At this point, they were prisoners. Um oh. So they escaped during the night, mostly on foot, and began their harsh journey back north. They would continue for 1,500 miles, the entire time being pursued by troops. There were numerous battles that took place during this time, and, of course, Buffalo Calf was right there in the middle fighting to protect her people. Oh, she's such a badass. Oh my god. Oh my god, I know! She's so cool, and she's like a mother of two! God, just... Actually, I'm going to send you a photo of her before I forget. Oh, please do. And I'll, I'll post this on her Instagram so all of you can go and see it as well. Or you can Google it right now if you want to see. Yeah, she does not look like she's to be fucked with, so. No. No, she does not. So, eventually the group of 300 escaped Cheyenne natives split in two. Buffalo Calf's group was able to hide in the sand hills of Nebraska for a time. The other half of the group would eventually be captured by the troops, and many of them, the men, women, and children, would be killed. Unfortunately, Buffalo Calf's husband, Black Coyote, began descending into a madness and killed another Cheyenne chief during an argument. Because of this, Buffalo Calf's family was banished from the tribe, and they had to set out on their own. Dude. Yeah. Dude. I'd be fucking pissed. I'd be pissed. Wow. Like, all that she... I mean, yeah, like, don't kill another chief. But, like, all that she gave. All... I mean... And I mean, like, it's... Like, she proved, like, they all work together to fight them off so far. It's like, who are you without the rest of your tribe? It's like... I mean, he was going hard. Like, he was, like, murdering any u.s troops that he found he was stealing their horses he was stealing their goods and like when when the chief confronted him about that that's when he stabbed him to death so it was it was really oh wow really bad and it wasn't like a like a brawl no no it was like you need to stop putting us in danger like this and so it was entirely justified (laughs) to be like bro leave yeah so but unfortunately that meant his family and all the other like all of their other relatives had to leave as well so on April 5th, 1879, this is three years after the Battle of Little Bighorn, a party led by Black Coyote ambushed two U.S. soldiers who were repairing a telegraph line in Montana Territory, killing one of them. U.S. forces eventually tracked down their party, and Black Coyote and his two cohorts were arrested, convicted, and sentenced to be executed by hanging. At this same time, Buffalo Calf became ill with the white man's coughing disease, also known as diphtheria, and died at some point in May 1879, likely before the age of 30. Holy shit. While the exact location of her burial is not known, it is speculated that she was buried in the nearby hills of what is now known as Miles City, Montana. There is no monument that exists to honor her, but there was one prize-winning novel by Rosemary and Joseph Aganito called Buffalo Calf Road Woman, 
the story of a warrior of the Little Bighorn. And that is the little-known and incredible story of Buffalo Calf Road women. Wow. Before the age of 30, they think. Yeah, like because she was likely not born on 1850. She was born after 1850, and she died 1879, so it's almost impossible for her to be any more than probably 28 or 29 years old. So, it's just devastated, but the shit that she did, like, just what an incredible person an incredible woman and the fact that it wasn't until 2005 17 years ago that the truth came out about custer's death one of the most notorious generals in u.s history how he was actually killed by a native american woman who wasn't even supposed to be there that is like one of the coolest parts of that story is the fact that it was kept a secret for so Mm -hmm. long and like it felt kind of like prophetic where they were like you can't say anything for like a hundred summers and how that how the secret and the keeping of the secret was passed down is really incredible true revisionist history yeah and it makes you wonder how much because no like native americans didn't have like written like a written language it was all oral and so that's how all of their history is passed down. And so it just makes you wonder how much, how many other amazing details might have been lost in translation. And if not for these descendants of these warriors who witnessed her do this, we would never have any idea that she had done that. If not for the woman who witnessed this happening, being interviewed and their accounts being recorded, we would not know about who she was. And so... It makes you wonder how many amazing people like her were lost to history as white settlers like beat down on native traditions. I'm sure they lost a lot of their history and a lot of their oral tradition with that. So, yeah, totally. I mean, if not for big headed Kate, tell me about it. (laughs) The true hero of this story. Exactly. I'm going to make it about myself. Okay. Mm -hmm. And. Just because we're here, I wanted to make a few other honorable mentions of some other incredible Native American women that I saw in my research to find who I was going to talk about. One, her name was Susan La... Oh, wow, this is definitely French. Um, Susan La Fleshy Picot... Picot? Oh, God, I don't... I'm like, don't speak French. Do you speak French? Dude, I don't either. I can't. No. So Fuck law no. in the, her it's spelled F L E S C H E and then P I C O T T E. Fleisch. Fleisch. Fle- okay. Yeah. Flesh picot. Sorry, I should have okay. learned the pronunciation of that, but I was in a hurry. So Susan was from the Omaha tribe, and she was the first Native American woman doctor. She lived during the mid-1800s and decided to become a doctor when she was just eight years old because she saw one of the elders in her village die after being promised help by a white man, and he never came. Wow. So, she became the first Native American woman doctor. Another person, Sarah Winnemucca, was the daughter of the chief of the Paiutes tribe, who became a writer and educator who advocated for Native American rights and in the 1870s served as an army scout and interpreter and even spoke with President Rutherford B. Hayes, though promises he made to her tribe were never honored. 
<sighs> Maria Tallchief was the first Native American ballerina. She was a proud member of the Osage, O-S-A-G-E, I hope I'm saying that right, of the Osage, Osage tribe, who often spoke out against injustice. She refused to change her stage name, which combined parts of her native names, when asked by professional companies to do so. She danced with the most prestigious ballet companies across the globe. That's Maria Tallchief. Oh, I'd actually heard of her. I'd, I'd, I'd had heard of her, yeah. She's yeah, amazing. and that was more recently. I can't remember the exact dates, but that was it's more more recent history. And then last but not least, mm-hmm. Mary Golda Ross co-authored one of NASA's handbooks on space travel to Mars and Venus and worked in the secret space race think tank where she was the only woman and the only Native American on the project. Damn. Okay, so the source where I saw... Where I saw these uh, untold stories of these Native American heroes is um, a Reader's Digest article by Molly Pennington, and that's actually where I first found the mention of Buffalo Calf Road Woman was in the same article that mentioned these other women that I just mentioned. And there are other, you know, incredible male Native American heroes like um, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse that are also played a really important role in Native American history. But I just, for the purpose of this, I wanted to focus on Native American women because they're especially repressed and their stories are especially unheard in society. And they're still one of the most discriminated against populations in the world. So anyway. I love that we both like subconsciously chose women. Oh, yeah. To talk about, you know, like, I feel, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense, but also I was thinking, like, uh, going back to, like, you asked when I was telling my story about, like, what can we do? Right. Because, <laughs> like, you hear these stories and it's just, like, I think most of my comments on that story you told were just me going, huh, yeah. you know, it's, it can be frustrating and demoralizing. Um, but I was just thinking, like, you know, with the missing and murdered indigenous women like there are so many funds that you can donate Mm -hmm. to um and i feel like that is a really prescient and like emergent problem that needs to be addressed and so that was one thing i just thought of like as white people what can we do even if it's a little bit even if it's donating just a little bit of money if you don't have the funds putting it out there on social media and stuff, just like raising awareness about mm-hmm. that, I think is really important yeah. as well. And I so. will do some research on some of the best places to donate to if anybody feels inclined to. Um, I'll put that in the episode description. But anyway, Kate, this was such a great idea for an episode. Obviously, we could talk about this forever. And I hope you guys enjoyed this history as much as we did. Some of the actual true history of the land and not what we are not the whitewash history that we are told anyway kate again thank you this was such mm-hmm. a great topic and we will be back next week everybody for another uh three two one shots and whoop, whoop. we are very excited for that so thank you all for listening and if you if there are other um, any other amazing or inspirational indigenous people that we miss please let us know we have an instagram salt lime story time please comment and let us know who else we should look into because I am personally very interested in those topics. So, all right, guys, thank you very much. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. 
Hi everybody, as I mentioned at the end of this episode, I have included in the episode description several links that you can check out if you would like to support Native American, Native Hawaiian, Native Alaskan, or Indigenous people. Um, There are many ways you can help that aren't just through donations, so I would encourage you to go and check those out. However, there is one organization that I would like to give special attention to right now, and that is the Adopt a Native Elder organization. It is a local Utah group, and I actually know the people who founded this organization, and they are incredible, and I have personally seen the effect that this organization has on the lives of these Navajo elders, and if you would like to help support these people, there is an amazing Navajo rug show sale happening online on Friday, November 11th at 6 o'clock p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Here, you can purchase authentic hand-woven rugs and handmade jewelry made by these elders in these Navajo reservations. The price is chosen by by the creator and 100% of that price goes to them. This is an incredible way to help them get through this cold winter to come. So not only will you get something incredible and beautiful and entirely handmade and unique and one of a kind, you will also be able to support local Navajo elders. So please, I encourage you to check it out. I will put the link in the description of this episode as well. Again, that is Adopt a Native Elder and you can find them online at nelder.org. That is A-N-E-L-D-E-R.org and I will put that in the episode description. Thank you guys so much.